Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert and I'll be your host. Today I want to talk about the beginnings of projects and more specifically what it's like to start a project out to really grab the attention of the readers right away and the kinds of things that I have done to uh, make that happen. I'll share a bunch of examples from books that I've written and sort of talk about what I was thinking when I did those things. One of the biggest mistakes that I find in brand new writers, especially the ones that I've been trying to mentor and sort of help when they come to me and they're brand new, is that they oftentimes are writing a in the beginning sort of intro. Uh, Not quite as extreme as this, but as an example, it would be to start off at the character's birth and then go all the way through until we get up to the modern day, the present setting of the actual story itself and what's happening. And there's something to be said about starting in the middle of the story to really bring readers right in because they are going to sort of stumble upon a scene and see all this action and go, whoa, whoa, what's going on? And whether it is physical action, a gun battle or a sword fight, or if it's just some sort of mental torment that the character is going through, either way, you're going to be grabbing the attention of your reader right off the bat in that format. Something that stuck with me my whole life since I was a little kid is a line from Perry Mason. Before I was even a writer, I don't know why this line really got there in the back of my head, but Perry has some guy on the stand, he's a writer, and he tells him that uh, no writer forgets the first line of their book. They remember it no matter what. And for some reason, and luckily that stuck with me, so that whenever I worked on a project, I wanted that first line to really matter. And I always wanted to make sure that it was super exciting or at least interesting. Now, I'm not saying I succeed at that every time, and I don't agonize over it if it's not the ultimate line and I still think that the rest of the book is going to be very strong. I proceed. I mean, there's no there's no reason to agonize over something. You know, if it's not working, don't force it. But uh there is that. There is that first line. There is that first paragraph, even the first page, how you present it and what people are going to expect. And it does sort of paint a picture of what the whole book is going to be, or at least it should. So, for an example, In severe rated R movies for a long time, you would have an opening prologue where the character would likely use some pretty strong profanity. And that would be your reminder, yeah, you just came into a rated R movie. It's going to be crazy town. Uh, Whereas maybe you enter a movie and there's just some crazy action scene. Think like Blade, where he basically goes into some kind of club and just wipes out an ass load of vampires. You know what you're going to get. Now... Think about the movies or the books that you're reading where they start out with a crazy action scene and then they like step back from it for the majority of the film and then only have another action scene at the end or way, way, way late and the rest of it is drama. That's sort of a false advertisement in a lot of ways. Your opening of your book is advertising what people are about to get. So it's important to ensure that you're setting the proper tone because once someone reads that, they're sort of going to have this expectation in their head. That's not to say that twisting is a bad thing. In fact, sometimes it's awesome to surprise people. But usually people are going to pick up a book, they're going to read that opening part, and they're going to say, man, I'm really excited about that. So if they get something completely different, they might be disappointed. And you don't necessarily want to do that because that's your audience. You're trying to entertain. You're trying to tell them something. You're trying to affirm a theme. And if people are caught up on the fact that the book is not as it was advertised in the prologue, 
then they might miss the theme and they might miss your point. So we have to be careful about that. But let's take a look at some examples here really quick from some of the work I've done. This first example is going to come from the book Ancestral Reunion, and this is the prologue. I'm going to die. The thought ran through my head as I peered over the castle wall, staring into a thick fog blanketing the snowy ground below. Gray clouds acted as a ceiling in the late night hours, blurring the silver moon and turning the pinprick stars into fireflies. Dusty snow flurried about in the mountain breeze, adding to the six inches accumulated on the crenellations. When will it happen? The exact moment played out a dozen times in my head, though I often struggled against it. I'd long been an eternal cynic regarding fate, and like all classic figures of the past, I swore I'd defy my destiny. My younger self enjoyed incredible bravado, enough to bathe me in nostalgia years later. Acceptance dashed the last vestiges of hope from my soul. Ancestral Union is about a young student who she wakes up one day to find out her uncle has died, and she didn't even know he existed. He's left her a castle, all kinds of money, crazy stuff like that. But she's also inherited this gift, which allows her to remember the past lives of everyone in her family. My prologue covers the death of the final male member of her family, as he, essentially it looks like he may be committing suicide on this castle wall. And so I wanted the prologue to really grasp this concept of fate and destiny and creepiness and uh, resolve a sort of sense that the character is accepting what's happening to him, regardless of the fact that he should be fighting against it, you know, rage against the dying of the light, all that stuff. And what you come to realize when you read the prologue is that it's a terrible dream. And the main character wakes up and she's like, what the heck is going on? And she wakes up because she's getting a phone call. And that is from the lawyer telling her to come in and look over her inheritance. So as you dive into the book, you, you'll meet all of the different characters and that sort of thing. My prologue is supposed to paint a gothic horror hammer film style story where you've got the sweeping castles and the creepy vistas and the fog and all that great stuff. So I really feel like it was successful and the people who've read it have men mentioned that they really liked the atmosphere of the book. And one of the important steps was to take that prologue and then carry that through the entire book and ensure that the, the overall atmosphere was maintained as well as the theme of somebody embracing the past that they didn't even know existed. So that's Ancestral Reunion, and that's one example of how to do a start to grab someone. I really love the first line, I'm going to die. It's just that one really captured me when I was jotting it down. So let's move on and look at a fantasy novel. This one is from Forever, Always, and Never. Silence was a scarce commodity. Prattling servants, the endless procession of soldiers, and the inane gossip of sycophants made it hard to find a moment's peace. Even with countless rooms and expansive hallways, isolation became a cultural impossibility. Finally, a magnificent balcony on the far end of one of the wings provided Khalit Asinda the refuge from everyone, including the voices muttering in her head. Whether or not she could crawl out of her depression was another matter entirely, especially the way her environment conspired against her. The sky took on a deep purple-black hue, with a vortex of clouds churning angrily as a filthy cauldron stirred by witches. No dramatic gales or thunder gave the sky voice, no sound worthy of the rage. 
such storms were common and the violence stretched out to the distant horizon. Darkness should have covered the balcony, turning the flickering torches into little more than decoration, but the magic of the palace defied it. Instead, her little refuge was well lit, with an unnatural luminance reflecting off the ivory floors and sandstone walls. The idea of this intro is to bring about a vision of a character who has a lot of internal turmoil. We've got depression, we've got some internalized rage, and the environment around them is sort of mocking that, and yet it's not to the fullest extent, so it's not giving her any sort of relief from what is going on inside of her head. And that sort of paints the theme of the entire novel, is characters who are suffering with internal problems, uh, mental mental issues, mostly depression and feelings of isolation or oppression. And it's sort of couched in this action-adventure novel. There isn't overt action in the prologue, even though there will be some pretty serious sword fighting and, and that kind of thing later on. The idea here is to paint the primary form of conflict as internalized, as changes, dealing with the... Uh, evolution of emotion and that sort of thing and that's really what the heart of forever always and never is about is characters who are suffering that forever always and never is truly about a young woman named amory who comes to discover that she's the heir to the entire kingdom and the demon character khalid who we meet at the very beginning is sent by her mother to help her realize this and sort of give her a primer about who her mother was and help her understand why she needs to ascend to the throne. And so the story is told by hopping back in the past and looking at her mother's life and how Khalid interacted with it and how they came to be through a journal. And then it sort of leads to the point where there's been a huge tragedy that brought about Amory not necessarily being in a place where she would have uh, learned everything she needed to become a queen. And so you've got the mother character who is suffering with uh, the tragedy of what happens to her. I don't want to give that away. You've got Amory who's struggling to realize who her mother is and coming to the realization that she had no idea that so much had happened to her family or that she was as important as she is. And then you've got Khalid who has her own problems and the fact that even after thousands of years of life, she finally fell in love with someone only to find out that she misunderstood how the person really felt and that it wasn't actually him flirting with her, just him being nice. And that's really where the story lies. It's all about emotions, even though we are going to have crazy fights and dog sledding and all kinds of other crazy stuff. But uh, that's why the prologue focuses on the depression and this very powerful character being laid low by her own internal misery. Let's move on to the cat who pawed the cultist and look at a more lighthearted approach to a uh, novel's intro. Sometimes things happen fast. Catastrophes and missed opportunities don't adhere to the concept of time. They hit in seconds, coming out of nowhere like ninjas in a cheesy fantasy movie. And they can be anything from spilling a latte to a car accident to stumbling upon a demonic ritual meant to drag some horrifying monster into our world. I didn't drive, and I preferred white chocolate mochas, but as a student of the Holstrom Sanctum for Witches and Wizards, the latter supernatural event definitely applied to me, especially with my luck. It waved it good while painting the town red with bad. 
anyone at school would have agreed. If someone had to experience something rotten, even odds I'd be the one. So when I took a shortcut to get back to the dormitory one afternoon, only to feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up, I started seriously thinking about making a charm to ward off bad fortune. Chanting made my ear twitch. I recognized the corrupted Latin, part the normal language mixed with ancient demonic. Arcane linguistics for the win, I suppose. The person screamed the syllables, making it hard to distinguish all the words, but the obvious ones made it clear we had a problem in Seattle. The Cat That Pod the Cultist is a young adult book. It's about a talking cat who hooks up with a witch to stop bad guys from opening a portal to some alternate world where they're going to drag a monster through. But despite the fact that it starts out so harsh, I wanted it to still feel lighthearted and have the main character, Charlotte, come off as someone who really does have a lot of bad luck. But at the same time, she's super fun and she's got opinions and she just struggles with some normal things despite the fact that she's got all this magic. So we start off with her complaining about her bad luck and how she gets involved in this mystery right off the bat. It doesn't necessarily start with her stopping the ritual, which would have been perfectly viable as well and probably really neat. No, it starts with her sort of outlining what you're going to get from the story. A very casual style of writing where she's going to be more conversational and she's going to invite you along on the trip. And if you're interested, you'll jump on board. You meet the cat pretty fast. He's saucy and crazy. And uh, from there, you just go. And it's a pretty fast-paced story throughout the whole book. And the theme remains the same, is that Charlotte is growing as a person from being someone who has zero confidence to a girl who feels like she can actually accomplish uh, what she needs to do in order to save the world and to work with her new friend, the cat, who is honor-bound and duty-bound to protect the world. So that's the cat that pawed the cultist, and I really loved the intro to that one too. It just it works very well because the main character meets the villain right off the bat. We establish who the kitty is, and ultimately everything that you need to know to enjoy the rest of the book is in that introduction. So that's that book. Let's move on to another one that's a little bit more serious and take a look at that. This one is for blind corruption. I hate closing my eyes. Some childhood fears never go away. No matter how hard the therapists worked or the doctors insisted my sight would not fade again, I didn't believe them. They deadened the terror, gave me tools to cope with nyctophobia, but every time I crawled into bed, whenever I washed my hair, a tingle of panic gripped my heart. Eight years of blindness definitely left a mark. Three to four times a week, I left the light on to sleep. Nights when such a thing proved impractical, I trembled in bed. Even with perfect vision, acute hearing, and the soft glow of moonlight, I struggled to remain calm. Emotional freedom technique tended to be my go-to tool to relax, essentially tapping specific points while speaking in affirmation. Medical doctors or flesh mechanics in shadier circles rarely struggled to cure people. They either could repair damage or not. The body responded to their treatments, and they sent the person away, cured as far as they were concerned. The mind fell outside their purview. Complete care mattered to a rarefied few. Blind Corruption is a near-future sci-fi novel that follows an assassin who has been trained to work for one of the major corporations and essentially clean up their messes and investigate threats to the, to the gross product of the company. And the woman in question suffered from severe blindness as a child, so 
one of the corporations invested in fixing that problem for her. And then they sent her to a specialized school where she would learn all of the skills necessary to basically serve them. And one of the tricks here, obviously, at the very beginning, we're learning that her big fear, her terror, is this this sense that she might become blind again, that she's really afraid of the dark. And uh, I came up with that because I've experienced it a few times myself. I've gone to wash my hair in the shower and just feel this surge of panic. And that inspired me to write the entire novel, to be honest. But that terror of the dark that we sometimes feel really did come across as something that I wanted to explore with her. And so normally we have these crazy assassin characters and they have some some flaw. Maybe it's a social flaw because they don't know as much about the the way things work in the world. They just sort of pigeonhole themselves into I kill people and I'm really good at it and I get away with it. Uh, so they, you know, maybe they don't know how to read or they're not versed in pop culture or whatever the case may be. Or maybe they have other weird quirks where they, you know, love a pop singer way too much. Whatever the case may be. Uh, assassin characters have to have some kind of flaw or unique qualifier. Otherwise, they're just aliens who run around murdering people. They're serial killers that take money. Um, with this character, she is trained to be an assassin, but she ends up working for a division of security specialists. They're kind of like spies, really, that go around and to stop terrorist attacks on the company. And that is kind of fun in one regard because it does take us back from the I just murder people. Now, there's a lot of killing in this book. There's a lot of action, and it's got a whole bunch of that stuff going on. But we never stray too far from the main character's fear and terror of the darkness and the thing that essentially plagues her is a form of like solidified darkness it has a personality it's sentient and i wanted the prologue of this book to really drive home the concept that she is utterly horrified at the prospect of losing her sight again and because of that she has something that could be preyed upon by a corrupt supernatural presence uh, this is a sequel to another book called The Spirit Machine, and in that I establish that the supernatural is real, that there are people who can do extraordinary things. So when we dive into the Blind Corruption book, if you knew about the previous one, you are already versed on the general rules of the world. But if you haven't, it's not a big deal because this one doesn't start off with any of the previous events really mattering too much. I explained them all anyway. But... Uh, it's a very long book for me, um, and so keeping that theme was very important, and it also required a great deal of outlining and, and planning to ensure that I stayed on task and always brought back home the really scary thing that, that, that mattered. And, you know, we all have those things, so we can relate. We can plug in whatever our personal fear or terror is and relate to Sadie the whole time we're reading the book. Uh, that was Blind Corruption, and now we're going to move on to another new book called Crisis of Fate. Prologue. Winter. Unknown date. Electric pulses shot out in all directions, bathing the abandoned building with purple-blue light. Humidity sizzled, turning to mist. Trash flew into the air. Debris long dormant forced into action. A low hum rattled the walls and floor. Cement cracked. Dust drifted down from the ceiling as if racked by some seismic activity. All at once it stopped as a person materialized from the light. 
She hit the hard floor, rolling several feet into an unforgiving pillar. Pain in her back made her wince. Flopping to her stomach, she struggled to stand. Fingers tingled, her legs trembled, but she managed to find her footing, albeit with support from the pillar. What the hell happened? She pulled her hand computer from a dimensional pocket. A heavy-duty case surrounded a 10-inch touchscreen. It was less than 3 inches thick, but strong enough to withstand being run over by a truck. Tapping the side brought it to life. The date began flipping through numbers, blurring until it settled on unknown. Are you bloody kidding me? She spoke out loud, whacking it on the side a couple of times. That doesn't make sense. Come on. Access local resources to show me the current date, time, and location. Nothing happened. You aren't broken. I just serviced you. The least you could do is answer me. Anyone who's listened to the podcast or read any of my blogs knows that I really love Doctor Who. And I really wanted to do something in the vein of those stories without copying them, so I came up with Crisis of Fate. And it's about two time travelers that happen to be operating within the world of Glamour and Shadows, meaning that I can explore past events of the story and visit characters that exist within my other timelines and have them being approached by people who are literally outside of time, who know things they shouldn't. So it was a lot of fun to come up with this whole story in the first place. And when I did it, I I needed two characters, essentially my doctor type character, which is Lucille Holstrom, and then a companion character, who in this case is Andy Wells, who is a fairy, a dark fairy and a light fairy at the same time. And their ultimate goal is to stop a group of time-traveling demons from destroying the world completely. They're going to let off a chain of events that will allow some kind of super bad monster uh, from literally destroying the entire universe. The story is supposed to be super epic and really touch on the things that made Doctor Who great to me. Those sort of storylines that really focus on characters doing interesting things, but also growing as people and visiting uh, real world events as well as things that are completely made up. I did a little bit of an homage there to the Terminator, the way that she appears in the particular scene, because uh, I wanted to touch on other time travel shows as well and sort of give them a little bit of a nod. So we bring up Time Cop and some other crazy stuff as well. And finally, at the very sort of crux of this story, we get to meet some characters from the other stories, which is super fun. And I really had a great time bringing them in and showing them off. So... Uh, The key theme here, of course, was to keep it very creepy and allow you to see that we've got something that is very serious that needs to be addressed. And then we lighten things up, which I kind of take the page from Marvel in that regard where, yeah, there's some pretty severe stuff going on, but characters still have enough humor to remain human because one of the things that we have to do in tragedy is, is joke around a little bit or at least make light of the situations that aren't quite as severe so that we can take a deep breath and proceed through those horrors and and make it okay. But that is Crisis of Fate, and I want to thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I hope that you have a better sense of what it's like to create a beginning to a book or a story and how to try and grab readers' attention. Um, My examples were there to give you an idea of how I do it and why I do it to maintain theme, continuity, to bring people in, but also hold them. And I think that 
it's one of the most important things of writing is the beginning. I know that, you know, in the uh, Secret Window movie, uh, Johnny Depp's character constantly talks about the only thing that matters is the end, but people won't get there if they don't like the beginning. And even in that particular story, the opening lines um, of his story when he talks about how he has to kill his wife are pretty engaging. So uh, continue to think about that. Always put a little bit of extra time into that first paragraph to that opening prologue to the first chapter, whatever it is, to really bring people in and keep them. That's the important part. And that's it for this week. I want to thank you for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more, please visit our website at www.societycasefiles.com. Or if you'd like to support the project, visit www.ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. I'll be back soon with more tips about creative endeavors, and I hope to see you then. Thanks again. Have a great week. Music